Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens and My Time Capsule is the podcast where people tell me five things from their life that they really wish they had in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish, but they also pick one thing that they'd like to bury and forget. My guest in this episode is Daliso Chaponda, who is the writer, creator and host of his Rose Door nominated BBC Radio 4 show, Citizen of Nowhere. Daliso, of course, shot to fame on Britain's Got Talent, making it to the final of the 2017 series and establishing himself as a firm favourite with the judges and with the British public. He became a Facebook and YouTube star, amassing over 200 million views of his performances. His other television performances include the Royal Variety Performance in 2020, Britain's Got Talent Champions in 2019, QI, The Apprentice, You're Fired, Good Evening Britain, and on radio, alongside his own show, he's been a guest on the News Quiz and the Now Show. He's performed around the world and at the Edinburgh, Melbourne, Singapore and Cape Town comedy festivals. His first tour was called Feed This Black Man, and this year he's touring again till the end of June with his new show, Feed This Black Man Again. There's a link to the tour in the description of this episode. But first, let's find out what Deliso will choose to put in his time capsule, shall we? Well, that's what the podcast's supposed to be about, so let's see if it works. Here is Deliso Chaponda. 
I'm sorry, I never put that waiting room thing on, which I always think is a bit rude. Yes. I think I'm very middle class like that. You know, that's why I'm sitting here waiting. <laughs> I've spent my life waiting in foyers of hotels for people to come downstairs. Now I find myself sitting in front of Zoom, sort of thinking, well, I can't be late. That would be rude. <laughs> I ought to say, right from the start, Deliso, how funny you are and how well you've done coming from nothing. Oh, <laughs> Hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> that joke is, it was, it's so funny how something percolates because that person was the amalgamation of around 10 to 12 little encounters over the years where people, it's a compliment. So you can't be angry, but it's so condescending. And so many <laughs> it's always hilarious. <laughs> it's fantastically condescending, isn't it? Really? Yes. But completely unintentional. That's the point. That's but exactly it. As are a lot of insults, I think. I don't think people yes. deliberately insult people very often, unless they're completely mad and they want to get into a fight. Exactly. In person, definitely. I feel like online is a whole other world. Yeah, yeah. well, let's not go down that route. That's yes. mad, isn't it? So you're going on tour. But before I talk about the tour, I wanted to talk to you about your Radio 4 series, which I love. Yes, it's actually, it's, it's honestly my favourite thing that I do. Is it? Because, um, I mean, it's a lot more work than most of what I do. So, like, when I'm writing uh, shows, I just kind of come up with jokes, scribble things down. But the Radio 4 series, it's kind of because it's like deep diving on specific things. It's it's yeah. more like journalism in that I research <laughs> and research and research and research a thing. And then I start making it funny, but it's 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 so much more work. And then also because it's the BBC, they fact check. And yeah. so there's a different uh, requirement of accuracy. While in comedy clubs, people flub a lot of details <laughs> just to get the effect. But you're just making jokes. That's okay. Yes, exactly. It's so satisfying, especially because my parents can listen to it. And, and you know what I mean? Like uh, stuff which I've done, which is entirely England-based, doesn't travel. But you can listen to BBC Sounds in Malawi. Or, yeah. So it's wonderful. It's where I started, which is lovely. I'd, uh, I'd still stick with Radio 4. And strangely enough, when I started... Uh, one of the people who was a co-writer on just, I think, on just one episode in in yes. Sing, Meryl, Meryl O'Rourke. Oh, yes, I know Meryl. She she yeah. worked on my current series, yes. Oh, uh, right. Well, uh, Meryl used to come to watch the radio show that I did when I was a young man with her mum. Oh, wow. She had to come <laughs> with her mum because she was too young. Yes, amazing, amazing. It's a small world, isn't it? Yes. And uh, and your producer as well, Carl, he's produced lots of things, lots of people that have had on the podcast, which is lovely, Mark Steele and Dave Gorman and uh, Robin Ince, all sorts of, Henry Norman. He's the producer I've found I can work with the most because he used to write, he tried uh, comedy, mm -hmm. so his notes actually are realistic because <laughs> i remember i did a play on world service many years ago and the producer clearly wanted us to solve the african homosexuality issues mm. uh talk about poverty talk about aids so many things at the same time and we're like <laughs> it's an hour we can't cover everything and carl is much more realistic <laughs> yeah well quite i think coming from that writing tradition it's very difficult isn't it when you write down a script and you have to trust the person who's going to read it to know what the joke is and some people just can't see a joke in the words that are written down i just did a thing for the nhs very well meaning talking about the risks of a heart attack 
mm-hmm. with jokes in it. They objected to everything that's funny. <laughs> and really now it's just me giving a totally sober and bland warning about what to watch. And I was just like, you came to a comedian for the funny. And then they're like, oh, no, we can't. Oh, no, we oh, can't no, have jokes no, about no, it. No, it's a very serious subject. Yeah, quite. It's almost impossible to write down timing. You can't write down timing. And then people don't understand. And then also you can't write that this person's got a cheeky wink. And so, <laughs> you know what I mean? There are little things which make it work in front of a live audience that you can't put in a, a script. And it's so hard. Well, I'm glad you've got someone who does understand you. Yes. So the tour... Yes. You've done a number of tours, though, haven't you? This is so a... this is the fifth one. This mm. is the fifth one. Uh, but it's also, well, it's the fifth tour, but it's also like a callback to a, my first ever show. Right. Uh, which is interesting because this is like a time capsule thing. But like my first uh, ever show I did in Canada way before I was ready, I just wanted to do a <laughs> show. So I did every joke I had. There were raps in it, poetry. It was just everything. <laughs> But it was the idea was really good. It was called Feed This Black Man. And the idea was I was frustrated that everywhere you saw Africans back then, uh, not as much now, but it was all the charity image mm-hmm. of starvation. And, and as much as it's a very good thing that these charity fundraisings exist and stuff, it was just very frustrating to me because I realized in North America, very much so in North America, that was all they knew about Africa. <laughs> yes. Right. And every conversation was like, oh, you've come so far. Oh, you mm-hmm. must have been starving and all of that. And it was sort of a response to that. And I did a bunch of jokes. It was funny, but I wasn't actually ready for that kind of subject matter. Yeah. So now, 20 years later, I'm doing Feed This Black Man again. But there's <laughs> also an additional joke in it in that, well, I'm clearly well nourished now. Right. I was thin when I did that. But you feed me with other things. What other kinds of nourishment, spiritual nourishment, etc. does yeah. one need? And it's, it's just a fun show. I'd, I had a big, a big argument with someone who was like, no, you can't put in again. Again, I'm going to make people think that they need to have watched a previous one. But I was like, no, it's more of like an idea. It's an idea. Or even they might think, well, I've never fed a black man before. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and it's all it's playing with all of that. Well, it sounds fantastic. I mean, all the things you do, the quality of what you write and your performance style is so high. I mean, clearly that's years and years of experience, which is strange, isn't it? Because people would have thought, like they often do with Britain's Got Talent, that you come on fresh. You appeared from nowhere. But yes, yeah. that, so I've been now doing it 21 years and it mm-hmm. was only five years ago, what, 2017? Yeah. That was when I did Britain's Got Talent. So it was after like a, it's that thing of you, you there's a glacier and you just see the tip. You don't see everything <laughs> underneath. And yeah. it's years of work and trial and error. And even before that, I did an arts degree. So it's learning how to think and analyze and sort mm. of like the structures of shows come from that, not from the being funny. So it's 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 years of stuff. Yes. Did you come to Britain and move to Manchester deliberately in order to further your stand-up career? Yes. So so what happened was when I finished, Canada is where I started. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I left Canada, I was back in Malawi and I was frustrated because there was no comedy. And then I did an internship in Ethiopia. But again, there's no comedy there. And I was really frustrated mm-hmm. because I had fallen in love with this comedy, but there, it wasn't 
something available to me anymore. And I tried a bit in South Africa and just there wasn't much of an industry at that time. But I had the lucky thing that I had a brother based here. Right. Who was a doctor. Yeah. So I visited him. And then while I had like a two week guest visa, I had two weeks to find an agent <laughs> to sponsor me. So it was like I was in some kind of weird game show messaging agents and appearing at comedy clubs and just desperately trying to find someone willing to sponsor me in two weeks. And I did find someone. So fantastic. So then I left and then came back as a comedian. Oh, great. What a bonus you've been. Well, thank you. Yeah, say thank you to your brother as well for coming over Indeed. and helping oh, out. Hundred, oh, he also helped me in millions of ways and things like for the first year and a half when I was just doing open spots, which is when you perform for free to, to get exposure. I lived with him. I didn't pay rent. In fact, I paid rent via being the babysitter. But still, still, <laughs> playing with your nephew is a much better way to pay rent than, <laughs> yeah, than hard currency. Yes. It's very strange, isn't it? Because you touch on this quite often in your act, that thing that people absolutely assume that everybody from Africa comes from poverty. Yeah. It's very strange, isn't it? That an entire continent should an be An entire that continent, way. which is so got so much variety. Now, part of it is maybe just how successful charities like Feed the Hungry and mm-hmm. UNICEF have been, which is great that they've always had these ads and fundraising drives, Red Nose Day, all this. Stuff. So it's for an amazing reason. But I think a part of it is that is all that people saw. Now yeah. it's a little bit different there are things like Netflix, which show uh, different things. But like I used to talk about how I was in Africa at a British school in Africa, and we never read any African literature, <laughs> studied any African history. It was all Henry VIII and <laughs> Jane Crazy. Austen. So if we weren't learning it in Africa, I know mm-hmm. here people weren't being exposed to it either. So again, now there's social media and things like that. But in the world where all you're getting of other countries is what you see on television and who you come across, I could see the only thing they were exposed to was that. That's why I always don't come at it like maliciously. It's just ignorance or lack of exposure. No, absolutely. And when it's pointed out to you, you do laugh at it yourself. You laugh exactly at your own ignorance. Right. Exactly right. You think, how do I not know that? I mean, I've I've had people on this podcast who've told me extraordinary things. And the awakening in your brain is, uh, oh, my God, how stupid am I that I've never, it's never even occurred to me that that would be the case. Why would I not think that way? For example, somebody said to me that the budget for Oxbridge, Oxford and Cambridge, is larger than the entire education budget of Nigeria. That can't be. It's true. The budget for the running of Oxford and Cambridge per year is larger than the entire education budget of Nigeria. That is absurd. Isn't it? That is truly absurd. Well, immoral, really. It's so immoral. Mm. And also, Nigeria is one of the wealthier countries. Quite. Wow. I know. That is really troubling. That's really troubling. But I think that's also the thing. It's that Sometimes I'll tell people in Malawi about some stuff I've seen here mm. and they think I'm playing with them the way that you would play with someone here and say they're lions walking across the street. And I'm like, no, it's really <laughs> like what I'm telling you. <laughs> yes. What sort of things do you tell people? Can you remember? So it's even just, well, sometimes it's just saying how cold it is, right? Mm. But also saying that things like 
it's very hard to explain a homelessness in a rich country to people where in Malawi, people are very poor, but like also you, you've got uncles and aunties and it's just a much more communal way. And so they, it's hard to explain. They're like, they're so rich and you're saying they're homeless people. I, I don't understand because yeah. it's meant to be paradise. And so it's so interesting because there's so many things which I say, now that's one of the negative, but, but even positive things, it is like sometimes you're talking about science fiction. Yes. Like when I talk about things like the tube, <laughs> people barely consider it here. Of course, yeah. And I'm trying to explain in Malawi where the public transport is very backward and it's 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 all over the place. There are trains under the ground that get you everywhere <laughs> and they run every five minutes and they're like, no, you're just making this up. And it's so hard to explain. It's so interesting. Well, of course, once you look at it from the outside point of view, yes. it does become absurd, doesn't it? You think, well, how successful were the Victorians that they thought, well, we can't spare any of that land. It's too valuable. We have to go under it. We have to go under it. And mm -hmm. then even just things like repurposed churches. There's a church in Bournemouth, which is now a nightclub. No one in Malawi can understand that. Like literally, it's like it's it's sacrilege and it's so wrong. And <laughs> well, how can you drink alcohol in a church? It's uh, it's, yes. it's just. But again, so much of what I write is culture different stuff because I almost feel like uh, this is why I say "Citizen of Nowhere" was the name I chose for the, my radio show is because mm. I move a, around a lot. Because you you don't really belong anywhere. You see like the weird in every place you go. Of course. It's got to be the benefit of travel, isn't it? For, yes, if you, 100%. You know, going around and seeing other people and the way they live, you suddenly realise that absolutely you live in a world that is only your world. It's not the world. Yes, and you. I think you also become morally flexible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I actually think, because different places find different things right and wrong, if yes. you've grown up in, it's harder to be absolutist when you were in one country where this was okay, and then you were in another country where this is unacceptable, and you yeah. just kind of see, oh, it's it's all a bit different. Mm. Oh, fascinating. Well, I, I hope now we're going to talk about five things that you've chosen. Yes. Oh, I listened to the Alfie Brown episode to get, get a sense of it. It's absolutely lovely, actually. Oh, great. Thank you. So let's find out what the five things are you want to put in a time capsule. What's number one? So number one, actually, is uh, very amusing considering uh, that we were talking about assumptions of Africa, but it's actually a spear. Right. Okay. <laughs> it is a spear from Kenya. So the backstory of the spear is I was in Kenya. My father was working for the UN High Commission for Refugees. Mm -hmm. uh, so we were staying in a nice area of Kenya called Loresho which has a lot of ambassadors and stuff like that. So a, a wealthy kind of area. Mm. And because of concerns of safety, you had guards. So we had a guard and our guard, and you've got to remember at this time I was eight, nine. So <laughs> I was amazed by our guard because our guard was like a Maasai warrior. Wow. Brilliant. Right. Yeah. And he would wear this Maasai attire, which you've probably seen on television, very long sort of, um, well, it's like a, they would wrap cloth around themselves, but mm. his weapon was a spear, right? His <laughs> weapon was a spear. And I remember, because I was a little kid, I would always talk to him and ask him about the spear. And so he threw it. 
And he threw it so far. It was absolutely amazing. And because I was a little eight-year-old child, I asked him to throw it again. And it just became our thing. I'd come back from school and he would <laughs> fling the spear. It's amazing. I His name was John. I think his name was John. But yeah. he would fling the spear and then I'd run and get it. I was like a lassie or something. And then I'd bring <laughs> it back to him and then he'd fling the spear. And it was so many of my afternoons were spent with the guard, with him throwing the spear and then what's really funny is when I became older, you start seeing all the complexities of that situation. Mm-hmm. Things like, you know, the economic disparity that led him to have this job. And then also I told the story to some comedians in Preston and they could not believe it. They're like, wow, a spear. <laughs> and it for me, it was just like a normal memory I had. And then I was also like, oh, I guess there's that image of Africa with people running around throwing spears. But yes, he had a spear, but we had a nice car. And it wasn't like, you know, throwing a spear in the savannah. It was throwing a spear as the guard of this (laughs) fancy modern house. Yes, on the front lawn. Yes, yes. So (laughs) very much that spear because of all the delight I had, but then also all the things that it meant later. It's so archetypal, isn't it? Yes, it it is. uh, And yet not at all. Uh, representative of of Africa at all. Not at all. But, I mean, not long before that, that man or that man's father would have been with a herd of cattle, which would have been his livelihood. They would have been nomadic people. And and the time difference between the two, the change in the situation for that man, the fact that he was still dressed traditionally, he carried a spear as offensive, he had skills in it, shows that actually he was brought up in that tradition. And yet things had changed so quickly and so dramatically that in order to live, he needed to work as a guard. 100%. And I feel like Kenya, Tanzania, they're the ones where the sort of development happened really fast. Mm. And so there are a lot of displaced nomadic people. There's also things like um, their game parks, Mm -hmm. which are now fenced, which used to be the lands which they would go into and hunt and live and Oh, it's it's been such a problem in Tanzania. I understand that there are these, you know, environmentalists trying to save endangered species, mm. but simultaneously they then are displacing the livelihood of the Maasai and the other sort of traditional tribes. And yeah. oh, and again, as a seven eight year old, you don't know any of this backstory. So it's just a fun throw the spear again, throw the spear again. (laughs) But as you get older, you're like, wow, I wish I could speak to him as an adult. But of course, you know, I moved, didn't stay in contact, of course. I I have no idea where John is now. Yes. And whether in fact he enjoyed that attention. Yes, yes, yes. I also remember we had a we had a maid. And again, like because labor is very cheap Mm -hmm. in like Malawi, Tanzania, Kenya, you'll find that middle class onwards have help. Yes. While here it is solely the upper, upper, upper class, mm-hmm. right? So I remember again when I tell people that, oh, we had a maid, they're like, wow, we, how wealthy were you? And I was just like, oh, I guess it was bizarre, but helpers are just a, a, a normal part of it. And again, as the children, because your parents are off working, you actually bond massively with the helpers because they're the ones who see you for hours every day. And I remember I had a um, a helper, 
uh, who I was trying to convert. I was very religious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wanted to be a, a a preacher, and I used to come with my little eight year old's <laughs> idea of a certainty, and I used to preach at her. And it's just such a bizarre thing that she babysat me, had to listen to my badly reciting Bible verses. Mm. But again, she was probably mildly amused by the whole thing. Yeah, has that certainty been diminished? No, I, I th- I'm still very religious. It's mm. just I switched from wanting to be a preacher yeah. to wanting to be a comedian. But there's a lot of overlapping concentric circles there because my comedy sets are almost like sermons with jokes. Yes. So there's a lot of it still. I, I know what I was pulled to is something which I ended up doing. Because there is a point to what you say. Yes. And I think that I look, I admire some comedians who it's just jokes, mm-hmm. right? Like I went to watch uh, Michael McIntyre earlier this year and it was magnificent, mm. but it's just hilarity. Yes. There's no thesis. There's nothing <laughs> no. about the human condition other than things are funny. And that is a wonderful way to spend an evening. But I would not want to do that. I feel like I have to be grappling with something or talking about something. And uh, the previous show was mortality Mm -hmm. and end of the world, you know, apocalypse, COVID. The previous one was like grappling with heroes who have fallen because it was about like Bill Cosby, who is one of the reasons I became a comedian. Mm -hmm. And then you find out they're horrible. So there's always something bigger I'm grappling with. But I think that's just how I write. I have to be kind of obsessed by something. Yes. I saw you talk to an audience about the use of the N-word. Yes. And, uh, and it was it was really interesting. But, I mean, very funny, but really interesting to see oh, their responses. Oh, I think it's so interesting. I think it's so interesting. It's also very interesting in different countries. UK, it's a very interesting thing where because of aware, probably because of awareness of the colonial past mm-hmm. or just because it's, it, people are very uncomfortable and you have to really squeeze it out of them. Yes. While there are countries where you ask the question and they just launch in, or (laughs) I did shows in in, uh, Australia and I was like, you are actually not uncomfortable enough. (laughs) No, quite. (laughs) And I think that's a big thing, especially with comedians who play with satire, where you're playing someone who the audience is not meant to agree with. Yes. And you can lose control of that humor because you (laughs) get, cheered and it's just like oh this is not what we were going for at all no i wonder if that's the route that ricky gervais has gone down him it's very interesting him it's very interesting because he yeah again i don't fully understand him but there are some like you know the pub landlord yeah oh al murray is a very educated man and doesn't believe any of the things he says and and it's clearly apparently and when people are cheering it on Mm -hmm. it must feel really weird and years ago harry enfield doing loads of money same thing. But it's interesting with authors, because I feel because you're standing on stage, you feel more in control, even if you're not. Mm-hmm. Because I saw an interview with Ursula K. Le Guin, an author, and she was saying that once you've written the book, you have no control of how it's read. And so she tries to put as much of her soul into it. But there are books which she put out where people interpret it the opposite way (laughs) and she can't really argue with them because she's like well you've brought you to it and i guess those seeds were there but that was yeah Yeah. and i think that's a very tough thing with the idea of offensive humor like i'm not one of these comedians should be able to say everything people because 
I do think that people's reaction to your work is something which you you're implicated in. Yes. Right. And you can say I didn't intend it, but you also have to look at what you wrote and say, what did I say which led you to believe this? Mm -hmm. And so people who know Ricky Gervais, who explained, for example, will say that, oh, he doesn't mean these things. He definitely doesn't mean these things. But I'm like, yes, but someone who doesn't know him has been able to watch this and believe he means it. Yes. What do we do with that? And take it as justification for their own bias. It's difficult, isn't it? Yes. Making that person feel seen. And do you want to make that person feel seen? Mm -hmm. And then being able to turn to you and say, see, it's just a joke. See, it's just a joke. Exactly. Yes. Well, I can't believe that you've chosen a spear because you've just made all the ideas of Africa become real. That's why I wanted it to be a spear. <laughs> also, I'm African. So of course. Of there we are. Well, OK, let's put that fantastic spear in there. I wish we could put John in as well. Yes. Because I love the idea that even as a child that you watched this and thought, throw it, and then he threw it, and then you went, wow, that's so far. So far. It was absolutely amazing. Fantastic. Okay, Delisa, that's number one. So what's your second thing? Okay, sorry to interrupt, but I just wondered if your mind is wandering and you're thinking about buying something. No? Oh, that's a shame, as this is where we always put the ad break. Well, maybe these will change your mind. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome back. I hope there were some ads or I sound very silly. Now, don't grab for that credit card yet. We have to hear the rest of the things that Deliso Chaponda wants in his time capsule first. So here they are. The second one is a book. Now, it's my favorite nonfiction book. Uh, you've probably heard of it. It's a magnificent book, but it was really... Um, how did I even come across it? I think I just picked it up because it was on a bookshelf in an inn that I was staying at, right. but it was Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Right. And uh, essentially, he'd studied psychiatry, and he was a Jewish person who was in a concentration camp, 
and he wrote about the psychiatry of what he saw and totally mind-boggling the things which he observed. And I guess the, the thesis which really hit me was he noticed that even though people would have thought in this terrible situation, people would just kind of like eat each other in a mm-hmm. kind of Lord of the Flies kind of situation. He noticed that the people who found meaning in what they were doing, be it like trying to take care of the kids, they were able to survive more or they were able to uh, endure more. Right. And so it's all about how like finding meaning and finding purpose is more essential than all the primal things which we always said motivated us. Now, I came across this book. I was like, look, I had depressing things happen to me when I was a child. I had all kinds of difficult things going on. But it was one of those, you know, the right book at the right time, Mm -hmm. right? Which I think it's a magnificent book, which everyone should read. But for me, it was very much like a, a lifeboat kind of being like reading about people in 10 times worse a situation than what I considered my bad situation and seeing that they had a purpose and they were able to get through it. Oh, it was so inspiring. And a hope, which is extraordinary in those situations. And hope. Exactly. As you say, you would imagine surrounded by examples of people turning into that animal state, guards behaving in appalling ways, the awful destruction of people's lives as if they meant nothing is extraordinary. And for people to realise, or for people to discover that clinging to humanity is the thing that kept them going is an amazing lesson, isn't it? A hundred percent. It's absolute. And there were so many things which, like he even talked about how they would make you work. But some of the people working were made to dig a hole and then fill it up, mm-hmm. and dig a hole and then fill it up while other people were building a train track. And the people building a train track were able, because there's a purpose to what you're doing, it's less torturous than the digging a hole and putting it back and digging a hole, putting it back in. Even if you're doing the same amount of physical labor, there's Mm. something about, even in this horrible situation where you're being tortured, the fact that, oh, I'm building a train track gave some kind of solace. And yeah, it's... I think it's also why I started asking myself, well, what do I want? What purpose do I need? Why am I here? It's all those kind of questions, which reading that book really triggered. It's also just an amazing memoir Mm. of someone surviving. So, oh, that book, I think, is it's my favorite, like, nonfiction book. I've not read it. You've inspired me to do it now, obviously. But um, in a way, he's the perfect example of exactly what he's writing about, isn't he? That he is The entirely. fact that he was observing it and making notes of it and cataloguing it in his head, which I suppose is the only way he could do, really, and then wrote it down afterwards. Yes, very much so. Very much so. Absolutely amazing. Amazing. That's a beautiful thing. Thank you. Okay. We should put that in. Yes. What an inspiration. Lovely. That's your second thing. Yes. So, Deliso, number three, please. So, number three. Okay. So, there is someone who I love a great deal. Okay. A very close friend. She and I have known each other for around 20 years. Uh, We've had every iteration of a relationship you can have. Mm -hmm. Right. But we're just close, close friends. And one of the things we do is we spend absurd amounts of time making each other gifts, <laughs> right? And some of them are fairly over the top. Like, you know, I, I made her a board game 
Um, she sewed me like a, a, a crochet, like little being. And there's so many things that we, we, we do for each other. But one of the gifts which she did, which absolutely blew my mind, and I think about it all the time and I open it anytime I'm depressed, is she got little square bits of paper. And on each bit of paper, she wrote down an observation about me. Oh. Right. And then she sewed all of them together. Right. Wow. So it turns into a kind of um not a carpet because it's it's but it's a lattice of little thoughts and moments about me. Mm. And that gift, but it's also the time put into making the gift, the thinking about all our history together. And I think I would put that in, but it also it's I always forget the word. What what is it when you, you have a small thing which means a bigger thing? So like a must to represent a ship. An emblem. An emblem, yes. So that is sort of an emblem of our relationship and sort of relationships where you gift each other and there's a lot of concern. So it's it is that particular gift, but it's everything it means is what I would put in there. Yes. And of course, a friendship is very much that, isn't it? It's noticing little things about people over time. 100%. And it's also things which wouldn't mean anything to anyone else, mm. but to the two of you means so much more. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so when you read it, were there any surprises in there? It w There were surprises in that she also put some of her fears, like she wonders sometimes if she's bad for me, because can I have a relationship with anyone else mm. when I have this close connection? And I'm like, no, it's the most amazing thing in my life. <laughs> but I was surprised by some of the insecurities and fears, but all the lovely things she noticed are things which it was similar to a joke. There's a kind of comedy which people love, which is the comedian just observes something which you always knew existed. Mm -hmm. You just never noted it. <laughs> yes, quite. So nothing she told me was like, oh, I didn't know that. But some of it was like, oh, I didn't know that about myself. But that rings true. Yes, it's true. So it was stuff I knew about myself. I just had never said. No. So... It was, it was amazing. So surprising. In fact, you often think with those things, well, I know that about me, but I don't think anybody else notices it. Yes. Yes. It's very much that. It's very much that. Mm. And um, it, it was really interesting. Just wonderful. It, it also made me feel seen <laughs> because I think a lot of the time we feel it was very easy amid loneliness and modern life to kind of feel like you battle and no one really sees you and you're misunderstood. Mm. And it's just also really lovely to be like, oh, this person sees me and values me. And oh, it's amazing. Amazing. And you gave her a box of chocolates. Is that right? <laughs> no, I, I also, I, our ongoing sort of theme is we all overdo we, we give each other very absurd things. <laughs> That's a brilliant so idea. The, the most recent one was I made a board game about her life. Fantastic. And, uh, you know, and we, but again, it's not always just birthdays. Like sometimes she'll just send me a gift. She painted something for me. Like I've always admired a certain painter. And so she painted me in the same way that that painter does. Wow. So, yeah. That's clever. It's interesting how friendships can develop those habits that are only part of that friendship, 
You don't do them with anyone yes. else. With no one else. No it's one almost else. like a weird ritual. It yeah. becomes like a sacred thing between us. You're so right. I buy gifts for everyone else, but with her, I make them. Mm. Two stories I know of people doing that, and I think it, it's always a demonstration of their affection for each other. One is that Judy Dench and uh, an actor called Tim Pigott-Smith, he wore a black glove in a thing called Jewel in the Crown, and she mocked him about it, and then it would turn up in the most extraordinary places. He'd kept it. She would open things on stage, and there it would be. Oh, lovely. And, and she would then give it back to him, but they never mentioned it. Oh, that's absolutely amazing. That's wonderful. Wonderful. And apparently Paul Newman and Robert Redford... Paul Newman said, one of the things about being rich is I hate people who are rich and show off about it, you know, like they buy you ridiculous presents. And the next day, Robert Redford delivered a brand new Porsche to his house. Oh, magnificent. Again, Paul Newman didn't mention it, (laughs) didn't say a word. (laughs) That is hilarious. About a year later, the Porsche was delivered back again as a present, and they just kept giving it back to each other. Oh, that's so wonderful. Until eventually, Paul Newman woke up one morning and a man said... uh, knocked on the door and said, I've got a delivery for you. And he went, oh, God. And he said, it's on the front lawn. Do you want me to leave it there? And he looked outside, and there was a huge chunk of metal, a great square of metal, and Robert Redford had had the car crushed. (laughs) Wonderful. That's just wonderful. But, yes, I also think there's a thing where friendships are hardier than any other relationship you have because people have divorces and things like that. But your friends, for the most case, you're strapped to them for life. Mm-hmm. And so there's an extra level of closeness. Yes, it's wonderful, the forgiveness in a friendship, isn't it? Because you yes. can be really yes. awful to each other and you can be very yes. rude. And then you go, yeah, okay, forget it. It's great. And what a lovely, lovely thing. Okay, that's number three. So, um, yes. so let's move on to number four. You can either put in the thing you want to bury and forget or... We'll do the bury and forget one. Mm-hmm. So... I will tell you how I came to the item first. So I, because I was thinking very esoterically about the thing which bothers me a lot is governments and people blaming minorities for their problems cynically. Mm-hmm. It's not, sometimes it's not even hateful. It's that this will get me votes. Yeah. And I see this all the time. I see it happening now and it's been happening in my life. But again, I was like, what item actually represents this. And I actually have a funny item that represents this, which is a poster Mm -hmm. of me performing in South Africa. It was the year that the xenophobic attacks in South Africa broke out. So there was a Zulu king called Goodwill Jonathan. Uh, Good luck, Jonathan, I think. Right. And he made a speech sort of rabble-rousing speech about the the foreigners. They called them Quere Quere, who live in these areas and are taking all the jobs. You you know the rhetoric. We've just heard it in different places. Mm. And it sparked all of these xenophobic attacks on Malawians, Zambians, Kenyans, who are living in the poorer areas. Mm-hmm. Now, I was in South Africa to do a show that week, right? And the owner was like, oh, no. If we put, as we planned, Denise Chaponda, Malawian comedian, <laughs> some of these ne'er-do-well yeah. might attack. And he said, you know what? We're going to say you're Canadian, <laughs> right? Because I, I, I had lived in Canada. <laughs> I had been kicked out of Canada, right? Yes. But for that poster, 
there was a big Canadian flag next to my name, Delisa Traponda, Canada, yes. <laughs> even though I was kicked out of Canada <laughs> because they felt it was safer for me in an African country to pretend to be Canadian mm. than to be Malawian. Yes. And, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric now which has been happening with like Suella Brave Men and all these people. There's a lot of like in Poland, there was the, I feel like probably because of the global economic downturn, I mm -hmm. feel this kind of rhetoric is peaking and how much every country is blaming asylum seekers and foreigners. And also I was a refugee when I was born. So it right. resonates in, in, in all other ways. Now I was a kid, so I didn't understand. But I know now, like, my dad fled a dictator in Malawi, and so that's part of why we were in many different countries, and then that's also what led him to working for UNHCR. Right. Because initially they helped him, and then he was like, oh, I want to work for these people. Yeah. So, yes, I would say that poster represents my ongoing frustration with that blame the foreigner rhetoric. And it's uh, weirdly, it angers me more when it's not an actual angry person. So when it's like some angry person who feels the factory job has been taken by a foreigner, I can actually understand where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. Even though I disagree, I can understand. But it's when you're like, this is a cynical political move. They don't even believe this. No. That's what really frustrates me. And of course, the, the thing to do in those circumstances is the opposite of what they do with that poster, is to stand up against it, is to say, this yes. is untrue. 100%. I'm not a problem. You're right, that sort of rhetoric happens a lot, particularly politicians, they, because it's a minority, it's okay to lie about it. It's okay to just give them labels, say things about them, which are just not true. I mean, your own brother, I've heard people say, well, people come over here, they just come over so they can use the NHS to train. Yes. And then yes. they'll go back. And what a waste of money that is. And actually, I've been in the NHS, I've been treated in hospital a number of times. And thank heavens those people are there. And yes. and God bless them for coming in. And I'll tell you the one which I, so I had a friend who um, had an, a breakdown. Mm -hmm. And so he got sectioned. And even more than the regular hospital, the mental health ward is all Africans. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it has a very difficult job. And it was yeah. very funny because he was like a, a, a white person. And then I went to visit him. And because I'm like more famous in Africa, all of the orderlies were very excited. <laughs> and he was telling me that now he's like an almost like a little superstar <laughs> in the ward. But it was very noticeable how everybody was either from Asia or from Africa. And there was like, I saw one white person and it was just like, <laughs> the, <laughs> and how can you, if they actually ever chased out all of the foreigners. Oh, don't even say it. It would collapse. It, it's it crazy. It couldn't function. It's it absolutely crazy. Function. I know. I know absolutely it's ridiculous. Crazy. Well, I, it's a shame that there wasn't a doctor in there with a sense of humor, though. Who I would have, yes. I would have almost immediately been saying to him, "Yes, of course you're Deliso. Yes, of course. Come this way. <laughs> Come that this would way, be, sir. <laughs> that'd be hilarious. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I, I'm completely in agreement oh. with you. I think it's, I think it's an awful thing. It's, yes. it's not just sad. Yes. It's awful that people do that because, as you say, going back to the book we've talked about before, it leads to really terrible things in the end if you don't keep a check on it. It does, mm. 100%. And it's also like it 
enriches you so much when you get to know someone who has a totally different experience. Mm. It's a far more interesting conversation than someone who's just like you. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> a lot of people sit around, as they do in several pubs near here, going, yeah, you're right. Yes. That's it. Yes. End of conversation. <laughs> right. Okay, Delisa, I'm going to put that in there, that ridiculous use of, uh, of lies, I would say. Yes. And we shall bury it and hopefully it'll yes, disappear. Bury it. Lovely. So Indeed. we have one final thing that you want to put in that you want to keep. And the final one, as a comedian, and as it being the thing which not only is my live dude, but it kind of saved me in that I was like a very depressed person. And I feel like comedy, weirdly, was my therapy. It gave me a purpose. And, mm -hmm. and it's the thing I love the most. I actually would put comedy club open mic night, <laughs> right, into a time capsule. Because now the one I specifically did was called the Comedy Zone. It was in Canada at a, a hotel. It doesn't exist anymore. But these places all over the world are the same. They're very non-judgmental. They are a place where you see the oddest people. One of the great <laughs> things about comedy is you can be a misfit. You can have problems with whatever your mental issues. Just come try to be funny, mm -hmm. right? There is terrible comedy there. There's good <laughs> comedy there. But it's like, it's where I found a community. Literally, that's where I found a community. And then it's also amazing how I find it's the same in different countries. So like I went to do shows in Malaysia and I went to an open mic night and I recognized the personality types. I was like, oh, there's the person who's very shy, but on stage becomes really boisterous and overly <laughs> sexual. There's the person who tells the really dark, clever jokes. There's the person who's really dressed up and good looking. And it was amazing that there are these kind of archetypes, mm. which are at comedy club open mic nights. But also there's a fact that I can go anywhere in the world, places I've not been. And if I go to a comedy club open mic night, I'm home. Uh, right? Right. You're, you're welcome. Not when it's like a professional night, there's gatekeepers, there's thing auditions and stuff like But like an open mic night, you just walk in, you're like, oh, you're a comedian. Hey, come on in. And it's, <laughs> it's just absolutely, it's where I found myself. But I also just love them. I absolutely love them. It's extraordinary because for everybody else, they're the, the center of terror. The idea yes. that you would turn up there, walk on the stage and start talking. <laughs> Is terrifying. Yes. And yet every comedian I talk to talks about the moment that they overcame that fear and stood up there and started talking and got a laugh as being the greatest moment, the thing that changed their lives. It's true. And I also think of now there's so many different kinds of comedian, but there's also a percentage of comedians who are people who never felt heard. Mm -hmm. And now they're on stage and people are listening to them. <laughs> and I think that's why it's fear for other people, but for comedians, a lot of whom feel unheard, there's a level of, wow, I'm the person people are looking at and listening to right now. Yes, how lovely. Because quite a lot of comedians are quite shy. Very shy. They're quite reserved and, uh, and actually often very serious people. And yet they're able to see the absurdity of their own seriousness, I think. Well, I envy... There are definitely some comedians who offstage are very funny, right? And I've always been a person who I'm 
kind of sober and then I think and I write the funny. <laughs> and I've always kind of envied them when, you know, you're backstage and they're just bantering and saying all these jokes. And I've always like really wanted to be like that. But then I've been like, that's not me. Mm -hmm. But then someone else told me that the problem is if you're that kind of person, because I have a friend who I told I envy that. He said, you're always performing. Yeah. And you don't let people see the real you. So he kind of weirdly envied the fact that I could just sit quietly and not have to always be performing and just do it on stage. Yes. So it's it's very interesting, yeah. I think he's right. Well, we shall put an open mic into the Time Capsule for Yes, you. fantastic. At the Comedy Zone. <laughs> yeah. My wife is a QI elf. Oh, wonderful. Yes. yes, and she's been telling me for quite a long time, you must get Deliso on. Oh, well, thank you, and thank her. Wonderful. I'm delighted to have you as my guest. Thank you very much for doing it. It's been lovely. It's been a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Deliso Chaponda. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed that, but you're still itching to spend some money, then maybe you'd like to subscribe to Acast Plus, where you can get this podcast ad-free. Now, I can see that maybe I'm shooting myself in the foot because it was those very ads that made you grab for your credit card in the first place. But I'm willing to take that risk. It's just £2.99 a month. That's for eight episodes. Plus, you get a bonus episode, My Time Capsule, The Debrief, every single week. You'll find details of how to subscribe in the description of this episode and we'll earn our love and respect. If you're happy with the ads, then do just subscribe in the normal way and maybe rate or review this podcast, all pleasant comments gratefully received. You can listen to the theme tune on its own on Spotify. It was composed and performed by Pass the Peas Music. Do look out for me and My Time Capsule on social media. You can get in touch that way or email us on mytimecapsulepodcast at gmail.com. This was a cast-off production, so many thanks to all the guys from cast-off in the office. <laughs> I'll just give them a little shout-out. All right, guys! <laughs> Actually, all it is is just John Fenton-Stevens, my lovely son and the producer of this podcast. The only thing he's not in charge of is this end bit, which is why I can go on and on interminably, and why, if you have any sense, you turned me off ages ago or skipped on to another episode. Come on, with all the compilations and the Christmas episodes and special episodes, there are nearly 400 to choose from. Still, that's enough from me. I hear the one person still listening scream, even at this distance. I'll be back soon and we'll leave you with this saying. One of the great truths in life, I think. I hope it helps. Red sky at night, shepherd's delight. Blue sky in the morning, day. Bye. Bye.